You're listening to WDW Tales, a glimpse of the Central Florida theme parks from a cast member's perspective. WDW Tales, behind the name tag. And now your host, Justin Stone. Hi everyone, welcome back to WDW Tales. Ask anyone what a dream job would be at the Walt Disney Company, and most, if not everyone, would arguably say that dream job would be within Walt Disney Imagineering. Uh, The Imagineers are the dreamers and they're builders of the attractions and shows that are loved by millions of people around the world, and it's a pretty exclusive group. And I'm really excited to have today uh, the opportunity to share a conversation I had recently with Jim Schull, who uh, was an executive creative director at Walt Disney Imagineering for over 30 years, working on uh, Euro Disney. He's the creator of Rock and Roller Coaster. Uh, He's worked on Toy Story Land, Shanghai Disney. I mean, he's really done a lot of high profile and and very beloved projects all around the globe. And I'm really excited to be able to have a conversation with him. Jim joins us from his home in Southern California. So just to start off, um, I started, I've always drawn and that's the way I've communicated. Uh, And I attribute to that to being an only child who had a bit of a stammer and we lived in an isolated area. And so my father would bring home shirt cardboards because he was very much a 1950s madman era advertising executive, so everyone has stark shirt. Well, as a result, I ended up with inheriting all of the shirt cardboards, which I proved was a great drawing surface. And so I always expressed myself through drawing. I also expressed myself through dimensional design. So I had a model railroad kit, uh, starting with an HO, then going to the other gauge of track and then i discovered plaster and chicken wire and foam and so i would build things because that's how i would express myself so i didn't start to go into imaginary because i thought that would be a way to earn money it was a way to pursue a passion that i already had and my first bit of advice to anyone who wants to become an imagineer is if you are thinking about money or career path you're probably in the wrong position or <laughs> probably shouldn't be going into Imagineering because all the rest of it does follow, but it has to start with a strong passion to tell stories. And that's what I've always wanted to do is have a strong passion to tell stories. So anyway, after I ended up building models, I, you know, jumping ahead a few years, I ended up in, of all things, advertising for an oil tool company for a number of years, and that led me overseas to China. And I spent five years you know, working in China and working in Texas and working in Houston, working a little bit in Europe. And I decided after the end of that, the corporate route is really not for me. So I had some friends and one particular person said, hey, you draw, could you ever, would you wanna go into advertising? or leave advertising going to animation. And I said, yeah, anything's better than this. So I went into and started doing storyboard design and animation for television programs here again in Los Angeles. 
And I did that for a number of years. And it was very fun. I ended up working on a lot of shows you might have seen or heard about, like Transformers and, and Humanoids and GoBots and My Little Pony and Shira. Uh, a lot of them are shameful work. I did it purely for the money. And my son, growing up, used to torture me every year at Christmas because he'd give me a box of DVDs that uh, had my work on them. So he'd torture <laughs> me with this work. Although looking back, I think, you know, it still really does connect. And I've talked to people a generation or more earlier, younger than I am, and they go, oh, that's the greatest thing. You know, My Little Pony, I grew up on it. Go box. I remember this character. Tell me more. So, you know, I think that the quality of production lacked, but the storytelling, the connect to the guests was really, really strong. So that mm -hmm. worked well. Um, yeah, so, I remember GoBots. Uh, I remember pestering my mom for Transformers, and she didn't want to spend the money. So, we always, but I, I never actually made the distinction uh, as a kid because it was just, to your point, really cool stories, and you just wanted to be able to emulate the stories that you're seeing on the screen with with whatever you have. So, I completely you know, remember you know, them. Huh. Yeah. And, and it was good. It was good training because I mean, it, and it also is a very strange kind of a parallel universe. I worked on the first Transformers movie, which is an animated movie. And if you look in the credits, Orson Welles played a living planet, who was the villain of that movie. And so I'm working away in my little cubicle, and they call me in to do a recording session. And lo and behold, sitting in a dark corner, slumped on a chair, was Orson Welles. And really? immediately I'm thinking, oh, this is Citizen Kane. This is all the great films that he's done. And now he's doing voice work for an animated feature that I'm doing the storyboards on. Okay. And about three minutes later, after getting used to it, you know, started talking to Orson Welles and giving him direction, you know, telling Orson, no, more growl and more growl in your voice. So, you know, our works, the worlds that we deal in kind of get a little bit weird in ways like that. Uh, by the way, I, I digress sometimes, so reel me in, because when you've been working for 40 or 45 years in this industry, the stories, I have a lot of stories, so I, I'm self-editing, but I, I, my wife will tell me, stay out of the weeds, and I have difficulty doing that. So anyway, after, after that experience, I got a second phone call from a very good friend, Tim Kirk, who he and Steve Kirk and their and others in the Kirk family all worked at WDI, Walt Disney Imagineering, located in Glendale, California. And Tim, I've known I had known Tim at that point for probably 25 years, having grown up with him. Um, and we had fan interests. We worked, you know, in fan clubs like Lospis, which was the LA Science Fantasy Society here in Los Angeles. And so we knew each other. And he invited me to a lunch. And in the lunch, he asked me, would you ever consider coming to work for Imagineering? Because I know you can draw, and I know you're interested in themed environments. Again, I thought, great, that sounds interesting. And so I found myself going to WDI and talking to Peggy Ferris and Mike Morris, who worked there at the time, uh, and then talking to uh, a man named Bob Weiss. And so Bob walks into the the room where my portfolio is laid out and 
I didn't know who Bob was. I didn't know at the time he was the head of the studio that was being built, the studio theme park that was being built in Orlando. And so he looked at my portfolio, then he showed me some plans for the park under construction, asked me my opinion. And to my mistake, I gave him my opinion. Because <laughs> I said, well, you know, you, I think, you know, there's the parking lot's in the wrong place and the front door is kind of hard. And I talked to him about some logistics that were born out of storytelling. Um, and to my credit, some of the recommendations ended up having seen the light of day. They were realized after the fact. But I found out who Bob was and I left the building thinking, well, I had lunch and a meeting and that's the end of that. Uh -huh. I'll, I'll go back to animation. Uh, until I got the phone call. And so I got a phone call saying, we really like your portfolio. Would you be interested in joining us? And so I thought about that and I thought, okay, great. And so I'll try that. Because again, my reference point was animation, where you work in animation for maybe 12 months on a project and then you find another project. So I thought, okay, good. I'll go to Imagineering and I'll work there six to nine months and then go back to animation. And I found out I was completely wrong about that because in Imagineering, our project cycle was generally five years to do a project, three years if you're lucky. And so I found myself doing a project. My first project was Mickey's Toontown. When I finished that, I thought, great, I'm going back, I'm gonna be laid off, I'm going back to animation, that's it. And then the next morning, um, Tony Baxter called me and he and Tim Delaney were there and they said, well, do you have any time to look at something in Paris? I don't know what Paris is, I've never been there never been outside the country at this point. And so I said, sure. I, I said, yes. And I'll stop there for a moment. One of the second recommendations I'd give to people wanting to be an Imagineer is say yes to everything. Never say no. Because everything Imagineering does is a one-off. It's an invention. Mm -hmm. And you can't predict what the invention is going to look like until after you invent it. So if you're timid and question and you want to say no, again, you're probably going to be in the wrong job if you want to become an Imagineer. So here I am, I'm on a plane, I'm heading for Paris, my very first trip, and I land in Paris, and I end up finding myself spending the next five years there, where I was working as a lead designer for two projects, no, three projects in Fantasyland, one of which was the old mill Ferris wheel, then Casey Jr., the storybook Land Canals. I worked on the Aladdin walkthrough. And so, and then there was one other, oh, the Chaparral stage in Frontierland. So I worked on those projects. And then from there, I ended up working in California on DCA, the second, the redo of that. And then I spent years and years in Shanghai, seven years on that. Wow. Uh, in, the, in between the time, I ended up back in Paris to do uh, the Toy Story Playland, uh, Toon Studio, uh, starred work on the Ratatouille project. So basically I've been around. And oh, and then the last thing I did was the Marvel campus, which is under construction there in Paris. Wow, so was that, so was that, were you the art director? Were you the lead designer, the conceptor? What, what was your role primarily? Uh, well, I was the, 
the titles have changed over the decades for what you do at WDI. When I began, I was a show designer, and that was the person in charge of developing a concept. Someone would come to me and say, we want you to do something like this or something along this line. And I'd go away and think about what that might be and then come back. And since I draw, I'd express myself with a set of storyboards, sketches, drawings, some very rough, some more polished. And I'd show them and, and talk through a narrative. And I'd always come from the position of being a guest. And always, I said, my growth was done at somewhere between 8 and 12. So I would think in terms of if I were a 12-year-old, would this be cool? I'd want to do this. So I looked at Casey Jr. Or I looked at, let's take Crush's Coaster in Paris. Crush's Coaster in Paris, they came to me and said, we want to do something there. We want something in on this day, delivered and finished on this day with this budget, and we think you can afford this. And I said, are you telling me you want this that you think I can afford? Or are you telling me you don't care what this is as long as it meets the schedule and the budget? Mm-hmm. And they said, no, we don't really care. We just want you to meet schedule and budget and be cool. <laughs> That's all I So I sat down, and I'd like to work with a small team. And so I'd come up with an idea, a couple of ideas, and go to the a small team like a ride engineer, uh, a civil engineer, a facilities um, management expert and say, this is what I do, I want to do, is this feasible? Can we do this? If not, can we cut here? Can we add here? Because when you're working in Imagineering, you have a project budget and it's, think of it as $100. And they really don't care how you spend $100 as long as you deliver on time and within the budget and it's cool. So I would take the money within the buckets and move it around. And there are things that I wish I could have done with my $100, but I can't because they're not as important as other things that I could do with my $100. So I'll put my money there. And that's Mm -hmm. how I did Crackers Coaster. And that was the first spinning coaster and now the only spinning coaster that Disney's ever done. Uh, It was in a building because we have really crummy weather in Paris most of the year. So you don't want to be outside when it's raining and cold. You want to be inside. Uh, also, if you're inside and the story is you're under the ocean, well, oceans are dark, so I can turn off the lights, and that helps me budgetary in the budget, but I can also put in effects under the ocean, so that also helps me to be cool. So you're always kind of balancing these factors of, is it cool? Does it meet the requirements um, for facility and schedule? And is it, uh, you know, at the end of the day, will everyone go, yeah, that was worth doing. And Mm -hmm. here's another note I'll make as an Imagineer. I always try to do cool things because what I find is if I did a cool thing, people would want me to do another cool thing. (laughs) So I never, I never started a project saying my, my goal is to do something next. I always thought I'm going to spend a hundred percent of my time and effort on doing this project and trust people will see quality and trust me to do something to do the next project. So I'm always uh-huh. going to I never look ahead, but I'm always kind of looking out through the peripheral vision of what the future might hold. Uh, so that's just one example of many is, you know, and uh, Crush's Coaster really was very favorably you know, ex- received. I wish we'd done more. I think we should do more. 
Uh, other people have done more. Other companies have done more. Um, and I think it's a ride system that, again, is something that, you know, you'll see more of in the future. Awesome. Can we take a – let's go back uh, maybe a few years when you were – really hitting your stride when you were doing a lot of different projects or or maybe just recently however you want to approach it but i think it's always interesting that uh, you know it's not you uh, you don't just go off and, and sit in a room for eight months and then you show up and then an attraction or a restaurant or anything just pops up there's a as to your point there's you know there's audio engineers and civil engineers and show writers and and uh legal i guess but can you think of a time like really when when you were doing a lot of different projects or or when you when there was like when you kind of think you close your eyes and think about your time at at wdi and just talk a little bit about the culture you know was was it very collaborative was there were there a lot of i'm sure a lot of uphill battles and fights but would love to hear just your perspective on what it's like to to be able to walk in the doors of Glendale or or you know go under the under the curtain of the big top of the ride that hasn't been released yet and just talk about who you worked with and and what that felt like. Oh, well, you know, it's going to the big top is a good I, good way to talk about it. When I stepped into WDI the very first time, you, I couldn't escape the fact that this is this. This is the company the Walt Disney started, you know. And so when you're dealing with that heritage, it really underpins everything I thought about. And there was a sense of weight and responsibility that I had because you're dealing with the heritage and culture of the entire company. And Glendale is where WDI started. It started as Disney Wed, actually, is mm-hmm. for standing for the initials of his name. So when you, you know, my sense is if you name a company after yourself, you think about it very, it must be important to you. So I thought, oh, that's important to Walt. What else is important to Walt? And so I I thought about that. That really weighed on me. Uh, The people I dealt with, I dealt with a lot of individuals, and but there is something I'd call casting. There are individuals that I, that I'm more in tune with because of personality. My personality tends to be more passive and more uh, introverted. Uh, Again, partly because I had a stammer growing up. So I always default to drawing. I always think about how do I express myself visually rather than verbally. And there's some brilliant people in the company who could talk miles and miles around me. People like Joe Rohde and Tom Morris, Mm -hmm. who were just brilliant as pitch people. They could walk in and talk something. I can't do that. I can be very passionate and very convincing, but I always have to have artwork behind me. I'm, I'm talking to the story. I'm not presenting myself. I'm talking to the thing, the, the story behind me. Um, as far as the culture, again, going back to collaboration, there's certain people I'm really simpatico with, and I'll pick one. Uh, there was a ride engineer who I work very exclusively with because he and I just got along with each other. And when we were working on a rock and roller coaster, I got the assignment because I talked to the show producer in charge of it. And he had had two teams before that. And they tried to crack the code 
on time and budget for that ride, and they couldn't crack it. They could never come to budget. And they couldn't come to budget for a product that people would look back and say, yeah, we want to build that. They couldn't ever get to what I call get to yes. Um, so I talked to my friend who's a ride engineer, and he and I sat down, got some wire, and actually did two small-scale models of what became Rock and Roller Coaster. And we took that to the the show producer and said, this is what we want to do, but give us 40 hours. 40 hours is what you charge in time. So he said, yeah, I'll give you 40 hours to crack the code. We went away. We came back with a not a complete package, but enough. We had a little wire model. We had some sketches. We had the name of the ride. And we showed that to the show producer. He said yes. We got him to yes. We ended up talking to Marty Scalar. And we got him to get to yes. And then we went to the park, and they got to yes. And finally went to Michael Eisner, and he gave us a thumbs up and a checkbook. And that was the big yes. Now, once you get to yes, the big yes, it's two things. There's a sense of, oh, I'm relieved now. Now I've got the project. I've got the thing I really love and passionate about. Uh At the same time, you're going, okay, I've just signed away the next years of my life because I've got to be available for all the meetings. I've got to be available to all the individuals. I've got to be a step ahead of anyone because the next morning someone's going to ask me a question that I don't have the answer to yes. And my reaction and way of working again is I said, I like small teams and we convene every morning and we'd have what I call a war room and they would have Mm -hmm. sketches and drawings and, you know, it have budgets and we'd have post-it notes telling people on this date, this is what we're, where we're supposed to be. I didn't care when we had a scheduled deadline, how we get that solved. I just wanted to highlight, we need to be aware of this important deadline. And I'd sit around the table and we'd just chat. And I don't care if somebody has a better idea to solve the problem. I just want to hear the problem solved. What I don't like to do is have silos where people don't talk to each other. Because I'm not the smartest person in the world. I like to think of myself as a really good editor and a story guardian. Mm-hmm. But I have to open myself up to the fact that there are many, 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 many other people who are far smarter than I am. For example, a lot of people at WDI hate estimators. And to me, an estimator is my friend. People hate estimators because they always give you bad news. They always say, oh, you're over budget. You can't afford what you want to do. And I don't I don't agree with that attitude. I agree with the attitude that says, oh, your estimator is like a projector. He can look in, he or she can look into the future and say, oh, you're over budget. And then my question will be, why am I over budget? Mm-hmm. Oh, because of, because you want a gold-plated wall. Why? Well, okay, I don't need a gold-plated wall. Oh, you want three projectors. Oh, I don't need three projectors. Can I afford one? Okay. And you proceed through the process in that set of steps, and you get to the big yes, which is being able to have a successful project that you open. But again, that's why it's so collaborative. And people who try to be self-promoters or live within their own sphere where they don't talk to other people generally don't last at WDI. And I can generally say that they're there usually five years mm-hmm. or a project cycle, and then they leave because it's just not a good fit for them. Sure. That's a great perspective. And uh, I, I, so just 
working the the length that I had at the parks, I've made a lot of friends with who were more of the I, I don't know if you put call them on the ground imagineers or the day to day imagineers, you know, not the Tom Morrises or the Joe Rodies or it's it's you know the show writers who are brought in to write two or three things or actually, a good friend of mine Mark Rhodes I don't know if you know him or his family but uh, they would say that there would be people who come to the table and wouldn't wouldn't want to participate and would just kind of get the briefing and uh, go off and do their thing and it's it wasn't they weren't introverted I think it was more that they wanted to uh, you know be the next guy be the next person to to make the big thing and be well known and it, it, it they'd always told me it just never worked the the culture didn't support that it was really more of i have an idea who can help me get it done and help me minimize the dread that i'm about to feel when the ground gets broken <laughs> so it's interesting to hear that from you can i ask a, a kind of an odd question about rock and roller coaster uh in terms of licensing with Aerosmith, so is that is that the conceptual approach, or was that was there a lot you kind of go down the line and you maybe you're thinking either it had its own story or it was five or six different bands and then you know licensing or legal gets involved and they say all right Aerosmith will do it or how does that work? So Aerosmith as a band was important. We spent a lot of time with Aerosmith, myself and the rest of the team. And they're very, very supportive. Uh, they own, at the time, a restaurant, an Italian restaurant on the East Coast. We spent a lot of time spending, having meals with them. And they were very much a contributor to the project. Uh, but they didn't drive initially what the project was because you start with the idea of rock and roller coaster. That means there's a band involved. And it could mm -hmm. be Aerosmith, it could be Rolling Stones, it could be another band, but it had to be rock and roll. So you start with that, and that's a placeholder, a foundational touchstone that everything gets built around. We start with that. The second thing was that before I joined, the idea was that it was more set in Hollywood. So one of the images in the room was the old A&M record studio, which was the Chaplin studio before that in Los Angeles, in the Hollywood area. But it's a very, very kind of sedate. If you look at the, if you Google Chaplin Studio or A&M Records, I think now it has, it's the Henson Studio. They own it. But it's all Tudor. And it's, mm -hmm. it's plaster and Tudor, and it's not what you associate with rock and roll. So I did some research and thought about it, and I actually gravitated the other direction to the old RKO Studio. Oh, right. which was all street modern and deco and it was high energy it also happened to align nicely with the a, a building that we could afford to build uh -huh. because when you deal with deco and streamline you're not dealing with a lot of ornamentation there's some big architectural statements and so that worked that way uh, and the biggest architectural statement again because it's rock and roll rock and roll are guitars and when I started working on my version of Rock and Roller Coaster, on the AM record facade, there was a billboard advertising rock and roll with a drawing of a guitar. And so I thought, oh, that's cool. I really like that. 
And so every time I would redraw that, the guitar continued to get larger and larger and larger. And finally, there were two billboards because the guitar started on billboard A and ended on billboard B. And then I had the epiphany of thinking, well, why have a billboard at all? Just build a big guitar. <laughs> so that's why that was the start of building the actual guitar prop that you find in Orlando. And I bought had well, I bought two guitars, actual two Fender Stratocasters from Guitar City in Los Angeles, took one to the model shop and gave it to a dimensional designer who happened to play guitar. And I brought tears to his eye because I said, now you need to saw the neck off. <laughs> and he did. And I gave him, I owed him a lunch for that, a really good lunch. But he did saw the neck off because we wanted an accurate guitar. And we took that guitar to the prop house that built the large guitar in Orlando and said, you have to duplicate this because we're going to build a Fender Stratocaster really, really big. And therefore, it has to be accurate. So take this actual Stratocaster guitar and scale it up. And it got really, really big. Uh -huh. um, and it was very successful. Um, in fact, we did the second rock and roller coaster, although it was different. And we did that one in Paris. Uh -huh. I got to say, just the the whole setup with the courtyard and the way that the the limos follow the the frets and the fretboard to the front of the of the uh, courtyard, it's genius. I. When I was at the studios at that time, I was at the movie ride, but I, there were days where I would do production, you know, filming would come in and that's when uh, Coaster was just opening. And so like I was there with Aerosmith and the Monday Night Football guys did a bumper uh, when ABC was doing Monday Night Football. And so I was able to, to ride it early and just take it in before all the guests descended upon it. But just the flow through the entire attraction is so neat. And I got to say just, Personally, as a drummer who's drummed all over mm -hmm. Disney, Joey Kramer's drum set, he was sponsored by Tama, and then he switched over to Drum Workshop, and like the day later, the Drum Workshop drums were in there. And I thought that was, I don't know how many people would notice those kinds of things, but I was like, that is, in, that's dedication. That is really cool. I also felt sad that the drums just sat there unplayed day in and day out. <laughs> But what a well, and, neat attention to detail. Yeah, and many of the props in the recording studios came from Aerosmith. Those were their actual props. The flag, the lava lamps, uh, the, the scarves that Steve Steve would wear. Those were actual real, those are theirs. They gave them to us. Um, and, you know, your point is really interesting because there is a parallel that we have to follow. There's always a story, but we also, once you have the story, then you have what I call story logic. And it's a through line for the entire attraction. Once you start with the the fact that you're going to go into a studio and you want to end up in this high speed roller coaster, what's the motivation for that? Now, I, you know, I don't sing, I don't play guitar, I don't know anything about music, but I do appreciate it. So when I went to Kevin Rafferty, who was the show writer, you know, my pitch was kind of a personal pitch, where and out of that pitch came the dialogue that he wrote, which was when the, the Aerosmith agent says to all of the guests, they, if they're your biggest fan and you want them there, I've got to pick up the telephone right now and get a really big car. And that became the justification for the ride mm -hmm. 
coaster train that everyone rode. But it came out of the fact that at that moment, the agent was speaking to me and all the guests to say, you would never be invited to this concert for special VIP passes. But today, because you have a connection to the group, Aerosmith, you get to go and you're going to have an experience like no one else's. And that's, I hope, transcends the roller coaster and the thrills and the high speed launch and the inversions. I think that I hope speaks to a personal reaction and desire for people that they want to go places that otherwise they'd never be able to go. Mm -hmm. And again, I'll stop there. One of the things I had a very good lunch with John Hench, the legendary Imagineering. I asked him during the lunch, what is Disney about? He said, in his opinion, it's about a lot of things, but it's about journeys and safe returns. And that always resonated, always stuck with me. And rock and roller coaster reflects that, that you're going on a journey, you're going on a journey, but we're guaranteeing a safe return. Uh, so, you know, it found its way into rock and roller coaster. I hope it found its way into other things I did. Well, it's at least to me, it, the it, it's not lost. I, I got to say that, and and I think this echoes probably a lot of uh, of not just the Disney fans, but probably guests as well and what's a differentiator disney than anyone else is the ride getting in the ride vehicle to me is the icing on the cake it's the story the story is the thing that i absolutely love like you know the minute you go using rock and roller coaster as an example the minute you walk into g-force records you are in a recording studio you are seeing something that not many people get to see you're meeting a band you're you're then you get on the ride and the ride it, it and it's an incredibly cool ride it's one of my favorite rides but i love the setup like i love the um, the the immersion and i think you know the more that people like yourselves are dedicate so much to the setup and the story i think the ride doesn't have to work as hard sometimes or Maybe it all works in concert, but I always walk out of the rides like that and I go, w w just what an incredible story. The same thing with Tower. If you think of Tower of Terror, it picks you up and drops you down. How many times can you go to your local fair and do that? But walking into this old Hollywood hotel and, and wondering what happened to these four people, five people in the elevator, and then going into the boiler room and being you know, immersed – that's the thing for me, man. Like I absolutely just, I, if I could sit in the pre-shows and just watch them, and that's that's where I'd love to be. <laughs> it's it, you know it's a really good point that you make because it's easy to what I call brand slap because Rock and Roller Coaster was not the first launch coaster, Tower of Terror was not the first drop ride, mm -hmm. and it'd be easy just to do what I call a brand slap, like out here in. California, there's an inverting coaster called Batman the Ride. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that talks about Batman. It's not a Batman-centered story. It's just a really cool roller coaster with some propping in the station and the name of the character on it. We try to transcend that. At least, you know, good good rides always transcend that. Where it's about the story. So, in Rock and Roller Coaster is one of them. Uh, Crush's Coaster is another one. Uh, Let's see, Ratatouille was another one. Uh, there are a lot of things, but you always try to trans... You, you start with the story, and then once you have the th story established, you have a through line, 
that guides you. As long as you stay on that course, you'll be okay. I want to pivot by the a way, little bit if I could. I'm sorry. sorry. You have a point of mind. The rock and roller coaster is the fastest coaster Disney's ever done. I'll argue is that with really? Tim Blaney. <laughs> I, uh, I, I do want to pivot for a minute, but I also want to make a point that um, the, the cars are so comfortable. I mean, you're in there. You're pretty low as it goes as it as it relates to Disney roller coasters. You're you're really locked in there, but it's such a smooth ride, and I I love that. But I, I was going to pivot if I could, just in the essence of time, uh, a little bit more around the studios. Uh, I, as you may know, and as many of my listeners know, I one of my favorite jobs ever was the Great Movie Ride. I it's just everything to me. My sister opened it on the college program in 89. I worked there for a few years and um, you shared some really neat pictures that kind of triggered me to pester you to come on the show as much as possible of just the ride vehicles in the warehouse or, or at the show building before everything was built and Anubis and Indiana Jones scenes being built pictures that I'd never seen before. And I think that I've seen them all. I'm trying to build a documentary around the ride right now. So I thought I have seen everything and all of a sudden you come rolling into town with these really cool pictures i'd love to hear if you had any involvement in gmr if you've just had any stories of, of who worked on it anything that that you might want to share or just the studios in general but that ride is just such an iconic ride i didn't personally work on gmr but i do have some good friends who worked on it uh, eric jacobson was the show producer and the leader of that team and then Tim Kirk and others did the creative work on it. And they've led that aspect of it. So when I was new to the company, often at WDI, I call them fire brigades. When a park, big park is getting ready to open, if you're available and show and say yes, you're, you find yourself on a plane to go down and do whatever they need to do. Um, and I found myself in that position many times there in the studio as it was opening. So I had an opportunity to walk through the GMR many, many times. However, I do have one story about GMR. The Nubis statue you're talking about, at one point WDI had a facility where they built their ride, their show props, and it was called Tahunga. And it's over near the Hollywood Burbank Airport. And Anubis, the statues are so big, they actually put them outside so imagine those statues outside under the landing path of Hollywood Burbank Airport. So people would fly in, you know, they're landing at Hollywood Airport and they look down and they suddenly see these giant golden statues <laughs> soaring 30 feet above the sky. And you come in really low, so uh -huh. you're going to see those, those statues. So many, oh, many people, many people saw those. That's interesting. I, I wonder if it's something like uh, where, where Hollywood and Highlands when the old that old uh, set was I forgot what it was for was it for Birth of a Nation or if it was for Cleopatra, you know, it just took could have been intolerance. Intolerance, that's what it was, yeah. Where they kept the kept the elephants. I can always imagine just tourists driving by in the early nineteen hundreds going, What is this thing? So I can I can imagine what that would look like flying into the airport and seeing these this giant statue greeting you. Well, there's less about, value in those. What's that? Go on, please. There's oh, less value. There was less value in holding onto those sets back then. 
So they would go into what they call the boneyard. They'd be set outside the factory to let the weather tear them apart. Um, now, today, I don't think that's the case because there's a value to them, and so a lot of it finds itself onto the collector's market. Mm-hmm. I l- love studios. If I, as a just a diatribe myself, um, I always told, and I say this to my wife all the time, I wish I was the president of movies, of all movies, which just means I could walk onto any lot, into any stage, and just observe. Because I think that's... I, I love to see how it's made. I mean, I like movies, but I I like to see what the camera doesn't capture. And and it's usually pretty boring. You know what I mean? It's usually a bunch of grips and actors and people standing around. But there's a, a an excitement, a dynamic that I think is somewhat romantic uh, of seeing how it all is made. Well, there's also the, the celebration of the workmanship and craftsmanship behind making any movie. And I think that's something we've lost um, when you develop theme parks and design them, there are design elements that fall, that fall in and out of favor. When Studio Tier was opened, there was a lot of interest in telling guests and showing guests the secrets of how movies are made. Mm-hmm. Now that's not the case. The big mantras ride the movies. Don't show me how they're made. Just get me on the ride and let me see things. I happen to be a bl- strong believer that the environment of making a movie the studios, the back lot, the warehouses, the commissary are really special and interesting and intriguing and even romantic places. And so I hope that the pendulum that swung away from let's not show you how they're made will swing mm-hmm. back the other direction and studios are reestablished as a very cool environment to enter. You can still ride the movies, but give me a studio context that sets it up. Otherwise, you're back to brand slapping where you just take the name and stick it on a roller coaster, which anyone can do. Absolutely. I mean, that's the difference between a theme park and an amusement park, I'd want to say, is the immersion, but also helping people understand the bigger picture, you know, not just hopping in and experiencing either a licensed property or just a 30 second thing. It's really about the the full immersion. You, you said something uh, that kind of triggered me for a moment. You mentioned Ride the Movies, which obviously was a really big uh, slogan and tagline for Universal Studios in the late 80s or early 90s. Did you work on anything Universal or were you specific to Disney? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I left Imagineering December of last year. I can't speak on who I've worked for since. Mm-hmm. I thought when I left Imagineering, I'd have a nice break. My break lasted about 10 days, and I've been very busy since. And beyond that, I can say no more. Okay, well, and I will cut anything out that you need me to cut out. But uh, I, I only ask is because the pendulum also swings with me. I My very first job was actually at Universal Orlando, sh- scooping ice cream at Schwab's Pharmacy. That was my very first theme park job, and uh, and I had gone back and forth between parks for, for most of my life. I actually met my wife at Earthquake, who came. She was a spieler at Kong, and then they closed that. And thankfully, they did, so I met her and married her. Uh, but you know, I, it feels like Universal held on to that immersion of movie studios much longer than Disney did, and and now it feels like the pendulum has ultimately swung to just 
you know, working on or just uh, experiencing the the property for the, the the license property versus the the studio's vibe, and it, it makes me a little sad because I really, again, that's the stuff that I love when it when it comes to to movies is experiencing everything about movies, not just you know what you go to the theater and and, and experience. So I was just curious, but uh, moving to another question too, you have shown a lot of of images around Disneyland Paris and uh, the studios in, in Disneyland. Is would you say that that was your favorite project or is there another favorite project that you hold near and dear or are they all like your kids and you hold them all near and dear? They're always they're all my children and I give them all up for adoption when they grow. <laughs> you know, you can't hold on to something once it once you turn it over to and to the operator because it's theirs. I mean, WDI spends money the parks make money mm-hmm. so inevitably we hand over something and it's kind of bittersweet because you'll work on something for three to five years and so it's yours you were there at the beginning the team was gathered together around you know stale donuts and cold coffee in a conference room for years and suddenly you finish a project it's open and you give it to the park and they operate it so i will go to a new project once it's open probably within the first year and then after that never go back because it just it changes also i have a short attention span because of who i am and i my shortest attention span leads me to the next project and when i do that i'm 100 percent on the next project so i'm you know the mm. the last project as great as it was that's old news let's move on to the next new thing uh-huh. so i that's how i think about it i hear a lot of actors or i read and i don't know how much of it i believe but they say they never go watch their performance once it makes it to the big screen is that something like you do you ever go back and ride a ride years later and reminisce or once once it's out of your hands then there's really no need to go back and and experience it i i do go back um but i go back with a different mindset i'll go the first year and then after that it's usually another three to five years before i go back because i want to let the dust settle enough mm-hmm. so that i look at it you know more in terms of how much fun it is as a guest as opposed to all the effort it took to build it it's like to, to equate it i'd equate it to house models when you're remodeling your home you're thinking about all the pain of having your doors torn off in your kitchen unavailable but once you finish it a year after that you think oh that wasn't so bad i mm-hmm. love my new kitchen let's go do something again let's tear out the bathrooms or add on to the house but there's that period between the two where the memory of the pain is too fresh so you don't want to go and do it sure absolutely there's a big discussion and it's just the whole community around disney parks is is quite interesting if you try i try and stay at arm's length uh, but there's there's these kind of these two factions. There's the don't touch it. It's been around forever. How dare you? And then there's other people saying it's time. Uh, I obviously don't want you to put yourself in any type of position or 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 you know polarize anybody. But I'm also curious. And this kind of is a follow up to my do you go back and ride? You know, do you look at things and you go, wow, this would be really neat if I had the opportunity to either do it again or to either rip it down or gut it or or is it like, nope, this is 
this is my best work, and I want it to stay that way. Well, you're asking, I think what you're asking is, would I, do I regret any of the projects? And except for one, the answer is no. I've enjoyed everything I've ever done. I, I don't, because I know it's going to be three to five years, I don't sign up for that unless I'm committing for that time period. Mm-hmm. But when I worked on the 1990s, mid-1990s version of Tomorrowland in Anaheim, I had a bad feeling about that through the entire project cycle because I looked at what was being desired and what was being invested. And the two of them were never in alignment. Mm-hmm. And so looking looking at and working on the project at the time, I felt that it was not what it should have been. Um, and it couldn't have been that. Some of the choices made and were directed by management really were disappointing. And it's because they wanted something they weren't really ready to fund. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I'm being delicate here because I worked on it and I put my best into it. The team put their best into it. But sometimes you're working in an environment where your best isn't good enough. And mm-hmm. that was of it. So that's a heartbreaker. And even today, that land of all the lands in Disneyland is the one that suffers the most because it's not timely. It's not timeless. I think the concept of tomorrow, I think the desire for people to live in the future, to know what's going to, what will be around them 10, 20, 30 years from now, I think that's interesting. Uh, When you look at Disneyland in 1955 when it opened, you know, originally the date was, I think, the 1980s when Tomorrowland was supposedly set. Mm-hmm. When there was, there was a proposal to do Tomorrowland 2055, you know, when that was being done 20, 30 years ago in its proposal phase, you know, that seemed like a long time. Now 2055, well, we're in 2021. 2055 isn't that far away. Mm-hmm. And so when you when you try to anticipate what the near future is that's a problem far future thousand years from now we'll never we, none of us will be around so do uh-huh. whatever we want <laughs> right. you know when, when when you look back to the jules verne uh-huh. future again that already happened we know what that was no one's going to argue about that mm-hmm. and everyone who did that is also passed on so they're not going to complain the one that's a problem is what do you do about the, con- the near-term contemporary future? That's always been the, the problem. I will say the one project I really wish I'd been successful when I pitched was to do Tomorrowland 1955. Because when Tomorrowland was built, it was streamlined and googie, and googie fell out of favor. So, mm-hmm. of course, that was all worn down. And my pitch was hey, you know, what was old and obsolete and out of favor? Well, Googie is fine now. You have go down to Palm Springs yearly. They have, you know, a festival about that style of architecture. Sure. You have restaurants and themed entertainment about that style of architecture. If you, and, and today, right now, I can show you in Anaheim where the bones of the Googie 1955 Tomorrowland still exists. So, if you built the 1955 Googie Tomorrowland, that's a vision of tomorrow that's just as justifiably legitimate as the Jules Verne version 
of the future. And it's not one you could argue with because it's a vision of the future. It's not the future itself. And that's the problem, I think, with Tomorrowland. The moment you say, this is a prediction of the future, then you have a problem because predictions are often wrong. And once you're there, they're boring. But if you say, this is a vision of what the future could be, you can't argue with that. And then you have freedom license to make it as cool and dramatic and fun as you want. That's a really good point. I always wonder if that's the Epcot Future World challenge. It was so ambitious, understanding what the future would look like and how it applied to every day. But things like in Tomorrowland, and please correct me if, if I'm perceiving this incorrectly, but that's because in the Magic Kingdom, you've got that license to say, this is the vision. This is what people thought it would be like. Versus, like, the, yes, you are going to see, you know, hoverboards or flying cars at this time. So, is there anything, um, as you kind of look throughout everything that's happening, that you wish you, you know, you wish uh, you were on the fire brigade? You, you wish somebody called you up at 2 in the morning and said, we need you to build something fast? Um, or anything that you really... Um, envy that was done that you you wanted to be a part of but didn't have the opportunity oh, this is going to sound self-serving but the answer is really no because I, I've been very fortunate at WDI I can bookend my my time there with two massive projects I started working on Euro Disneyland and I ended working on Shanghai Disneyland and those are the two largest projects the company ever did uh-huh. so you know, everything else in between, rock and roll, Tune Studio, uh, Paradise Pier Redo, Cars Land, you know, those are big, massive projects. But, you know, in comparison to doing EDL in Shanghai, they're not as, those are the larger projects that I've ever done. So, you know, do I want to, I think the question is, you know, do I still want to keep doing things? And the answer is, yeah, I, I do. I'm currently working on projects right now. Uh, I was working on them before this call, and after the call, I'm back on them. So I've I've always been in, intrigued by what I've always been intrigued by as an editor and a storyteller is what is something that has value that people don't think has value. For example, family fun centers typically are your mini golf course and pitch and putt and mm-hmm. motorboats that are in your local neighborhood. And because they have low investment and not a lot of theming, people think, oh, those are the redheaded stepchildren. They're the second-rate parks. I would contend to you, I would submit to you, that if you look at, let's say, Toy Story Land, effectively that's an EFC. That's a family fun center. It just happens to be part of a larger park, but it has small rides, food, merchandise, interstitial spaces, environments, same as in a family fun center. So I think if you take that philosophy and you apply it to family fun centers, I think there's a big opportunity to tell great stories and also a really strong business opportunity if somebody had the vision to pursue that. Um, So that sort of thing is an opportunity for the future and for the near future, I'll add. Mm Well, you definitely have 
worked on some really, really neat stuff. I mean, just, I think everybody uh, he's ever and I've ever spoken to has always just held Imagineering in such a high regard. And, and as a former cast member, it's not just the Shanghai Pirates of the Caribbean um, or, uh, you know, the, the, the next iteration of, of Spaceship Earth or Test Track. It's also the everyday things as well. And, uh, and I, we've, I've got friends who worked the movie ride and now they work in Imagineering and, and some of them were working on menus, restaurant signs, and some are working on e-attractions, e e-ticket attractions. But it, I, I, I get the same vibe from you uh, that I get, I should get from them that I get from you is I'm working on really cool stuff. You know what I mean? And, and everything has the opportunity to tell a story, whether it's a signpost, whether it's a parking lot design. I mean, obviously some are easier to talk about than others, but it's just really, uh, I'm sorry. I dropped a remote. If that came through, I'm sorry. Oh no, no, that's totally fine. Um, uh, but, I, uh, just to, to manage time, uh, I want, I do want to wrap this up. I would love to have more opportunities to speak with you um, for the program, if possible, later on, Jim. But what an absolutely cool trajectory you've had with with Imagineering. And, and I'd love to hear just how you got there, what you thought, and what you worked on. And so I really do appreciate the time. Well, thank you very much for in, inviting me on. Um, you know, this is really an, very gratifying. I started, well, I actually started on Twitter, and you can reach me at or go to the Twitter account at Jim Scholl on Twitter. And the purpose there was sharing. So when you reached out to me to, to have our talk today, that was a great you know, honor for you to reach out to me because I enjoy and love to share. Um, you know, I've told people before, I was a Disney fan first before I were, ever was a Disney cast member. And I continue to be a Disney fan, and if, you know, and I'll be that forever. I've got books to prove it, and stories as well. well that's what I was going to say. Last question is a quick question. Do you have? Is there a prop or a picture? Is there anything that is like your, you know, in the vault? Is that going? You know, is that going to be willed down to children and their children and their children? I know I have a few from I may have pinched when I worked at the parks, but is there anything that you really could never part with? Oh, yeah, everything. I, I I've spent <laughs> the last I've spent the last uh, the last I have a project of calling through my old photographs and propping. There are some things that are going to go into an attic sale on eBay. I haven't gotten there yet, but there are some things that really mean a lot to me that I won't give up. I, um, you're talking about rock and roller coaster. If you go into the plaza, there are brass plaques mm -hmm. in the concrete, and I have one of those here in my house. You know, I don't know, I don't know where it's going to go. I've, I'll find a place, but I have, uh -huh. I have objects like that. I have a wheel from the Gadget Go coaster. Uh -huh. I've got that. Uh, I have a lot of art, things that have value, but mostly what I have are things that are sentimental value, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because they, they tie back to stories and colleagues that have special memories to me. So I, I totally get that. I Of all the movie ride things that are either 
gifted to me or found their way into my collection. I have a picture. I have a sign that goes on the door that leads to backstage from Superstar Television, and all it says is cast members only. And I have that framed, and I have it on. I have a gallery wall of like 50 different things. But that is the thing that's front and center because that, from a sentimental standpoint, is that evokes all the memories and the experiences. That opens the door to all the things that I I did uh, within my eight years, ten years at the company. But uh, yeah, it's sentimental for me too. Uh, that's those are the things that I love. And because it touches, it touches and ties back to a memory that you have. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really special. One of the things that surprised me was when I posted on my Twitter account an image, a photograph of the shower curtain I drew that was installed in Toy Story Hotel in Shanghai. I got an incredible response where people were writing letters and messages, asking me details about the shower curtain. I thought the shower curtain was interesting, but I would never have thought that people would spend that much time, personal time, Ask me questions about a, a shower curtain. <laughs> so you never really know what's important to people. So the best thing to do as I approach any design project is to think well, everything's important. Mm-hmm. Find the story and let that be your through line and then make everything important because to someone, everything is important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What a great way to, to sign off this episode. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and again, I, I can't thank you enough. I could talk for hours and hours and hours on this. And, and I appreciate that we have a shared spirit as, as being ex-cast members. Uh, but again, if you if you have the appetite, I'd love to have you back on and we can we can talk a little bit more. Absolutely. Well, I look forward to our next meeting. Oh, terrific. Maybe I'll bring That's you some, pitch. some pitches yes. that I, I wrote way back in the day. You can critique them. <laughs> I, I can do that now. I couldn't do it before, but I could do it now. Uh-huh. Just, I did. Thank you so much yeah. for inviting me on your show today. Yeah, thank you so much, Jim. I wish you the best, sir. Again, that was Jim Schull. He was an executive creative director at Walt Disney Imagineering with a career spanning over 30 years on some really high profile and beloved projects. And what an absolute delight it was to have him on the show today. And I can't wait to bring him back. I have just so many more questions to ask. And I'm sure he has a lot of more stories to tell. Uh, In the meantime, check him out on Twitter if you're not already. He's got really, really good stories and pictures and uh, is very active in the Twitter community. So reach him at Jim Shull, S-H-U-L-L. And if you want to reach me, the best way right now is through Twitter as well at wdwtales.com. Nope, that's online. Just wdwtales, gang. Uh, And I hope to make this a regular series with more Imagineers. So would love for you to subscribe and continue to tune in. And uh, I love your feedback on the program. So uh, can't wait until the next episode. And I'll see you next time.